Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. The NWSL preseason started on time. The NWSL Players Association made history this week by getting the first ever collective bargaining agreement in women's professional soccer across the line. Now, I've got plenty of news to walk you through. Plus, this week, we're going to get our soccer nerd on with Sarah Gregorius, FIF Pro's Director of Policy and Strategy for Women's Football. Yes, I did just use soccer and football in the same sentence, I'm sure. Some enterprising folks will send me tweets about that to break down the organization's new report on player workload, which has a wealth of data on how and when players are actually playing more on that in a few minutes. But it's a great discussion. Okay, before we get to the rest of today's episode, as always, to show your support of full time, plus get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else the athletic has to offer on our site and app. You can subscribe right now at theathletic.com slash full time. Let's start, of course, with the news of the week. There is no other place to start than the NWSL CBA. Now first, yes, this episode is not actually about the CBA entirely, but I I do want to put a few notes here before I break down what we know about it so far. Now I've been speaking to folks pretty much nonstop since this deal got done, and I'm working on what is hopefully the definitive oral history of the first CBA ever in women's pro soccer. Players have been so happy and so positive and so proud of themselves. I cannot wait for the story to be out here, but stay tuned for that. But also stay tuned because once the full PDF of this document actually drops, I've gotten NWSL Players Association President Tor Huster to agree to join the show so we can actually break down what is going to be in what promises to be, you know, a two or 300 page document. So hopefully it will make it a little bit more accessible. We can get into the weeds of some things, maybe how all of these compromises actually worked out. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I'm honestly also really looking forward to reading a good two or 300 page document. Who knew? All right. So CBA. Now, while we wait for that final version, here's what we We do know about what the two sides have agreed to. The CBA is going to run for five years through the 2026 season. And, you know, obviously there are some major points to this. Let's start with compensation. The big one of the big headlines is the increase in minimum salary. There's a 60 percent increase. It's going to go to $35,000 a year. That's up from the 2021 minimum salary of $22,000. And then they've also locked in a 4% year-over-year increases. But it's not just the minimum salary that's increasing. There's also what they're calling stepladder increases for all 2022 salaries to protect players above that minimum. So yes, the players at the max are not necessarily going to see a huge jump, right? But everybody is getting pulled up, which is very, very important in a document like this. There's going to be 401k plan matching from the league, And there's also going to be minimum standards for housing stipends. That's also big. The other big headline item in this document is, of course, free agency. Now, one of the kind of last struggles of this document was when free agency would actually start. And it has uh, broken down a little bit in terms of who's going to get it and when between 2023 and 2024. In 2023, players with a minimum of six service years are going to be able to enter unrestricted free agency. And a service year in this case just means they had to have played in that year. So that's the first wave. And then in 2024, players with a minimum of five service years are going to be able to enter unrestricted free agency. 
and restricted restricted free agency is going to start in 2024 with players with three service years. So obviously huge. The other big part of this, and I think maybe getting lost a little bit, is for as good as the wins on free agency are, there's also wins for protections on kind of the other side of this for waived players with four weeks of severance pay and 30 days housing and health insurance for any waived player. Also big. Improvements in player safety, of course, as well. Workers' comp coverage. Six months paid mental health leave is a huge win. Bethany Balser had a tweet about that as well. Eight weeks paid leave for parental, birth, or adoption. Uh, nursing facilities for parents. There's going to be new minimum staffing standards for healthcare professionals for all teams. One of the ones that I think maybe we're joking about a little bit, but is one of those kind of basic foundational things. No more playing on fields that require substantial conversion to the dimensions of a soccer field, a.k.a. no more baseball stadiums. So again, this document is going to be made public in the coming weeks. Once we get that, obviously a big breakdown, podcast, articles, all that kind of great stuff. So please stay tuned on that front. All right. In other (laughs) news, because so many things, not just the CBA, are happening Trinity Rodman picked up a huge contract extension on Wednesday through the 2024 season with the Washington Spirit, an option for 2025, and for a reported $1.1 million over four years. 2021 Rookie of the Year picked up another title, thanks to the news setting a new record for NWSL contracts. Bill and Teresa Predmore announced on Wednesday that they are going to be stepping down from their respective roles with OL Reign. Bill has served as CEO, Teresa as the president of their academy system following a two-year transition plan with Lyon after the purchase of the club, but they will remain as minority owners with OL Reign. We've also had some major retirement announcements over the past week with Amy Rodriguez and Angela Salem hanging up the boots. Now, both are absolute legends of the game. I've seen both play in person so many times, obviously two very different positions, but both have had such a huge impact on the NWSL on women's soccer A-Rod was honestly one of probably the most underrated strikers somehow for club and country. She's heading to USC as an assistant coach. Angela Salem went out on top as the Thorns MVP candidate in 2021. One of those things that honestly feels impossible for a number six, right? We don't usually respect defensive midfielders a huge amount. And I have to, of course, shout out her time with the Boston Breakers. The Red Stars coaching search is going to continue into preseason. The team's search committee, which does include owners, a number of players, and other stakeholders, released a statement that included this line, while we have spoken with multiple highly qualified coaches, we have yet to find the candidate that our players deserve. All right, Japan, South Korea, China, and the Philippines have all qualified for the 2023 World Cup, joining host nations Australia and New Zealand as part of the 32-team field. It will be the World Cup debut of the Philippines, one of, if not the best story to come out of AFC qualifiers. By the time that you are listening to this podcast, the U.S. Women's National Team roster for She Blues Cup is probably out in the world or about to be, so more on that front next week. Okay. Sarah Gregorius, FIFPRO's Director of Policy and Strategy for Women's Football, is here to walk us through the findings of their new report on player workload. Now, I do truly recommend reading the full report, though, again, we have already established multiple times already in this podcast that I love a good PDF, love a report. I want to pick these, <laughs> pick all of these things through for you, but I do have a link for you 
in the show notes for the summary article on the FIFPRO website, and then that includes the download to the full report. I don't think you need to read it before you listen to this episode, but if you are interested in reading more, but Sarah and I are going to cover a lot on the NWSL and the U.S. Women's National Team, CONCACAF in general, um, how we're in our sort of own boat when it comes to some of the issues surrounding player workload. And yes, we are going to talk about the schedule. So let's dig in. All right, so let's let's just start with why the study was done, why you think it's important, and what you're hoping now that it's kind of out in the world, people are going to take away from this, because I don't see data like this coming through every day. And that's exactly why we did it, (laughs) because you don't (laughs) see data like this coming through every day, every season, every month, whenever. So that is really, really important. I think one thing that I will always stress is if we want to make good independent and innovative decisions about the future of women's football then we've got to be looking at data and analysis from women's football so we can't be taking some type of evidence from the men's game and and applying it to the women's game because it just won't be sufficient and so obviously FIFPRO is very much dedicated to helping the industry make as good a decisions as possible because any decision made around calendar competition reform innovation design is going to fundamentally affect the careers of the players and that's our bread and butter right so we really see it as a responsibility to deliver this type of information because it's not actually to be overly prescriptive uh, with anybody but it's just to say like look just make sure you understand study and analyze data that is relevant to the sport that we're talking about here because the danger of not having that type of proper data is you just end up with these sort of piecemeal decisions in the end and that's not going to sue anybody and we certainly don't want to be in a situation down the line where we're trying to unwind poor decision making because we didn't actually look at proper data and and do that sort of homework in terms of analysis and identifying solutions proactively. Yeah one of the things that I found really interesting when I was reading the draft of the report is the case studies right Uh, one of the things that I got sent kind of right off the bat was Crystal Dunn's data, which I was like, oh, yeah, this <laughs> this checks out. She's played a lot, a lot of games. But just in terms of players' willingness to participate, being able to pull kind of a very diverse sample just in terms of where players are playing for club and country, how did that work out for FIFPRO? It was a very interesting process, actually. We we don't can't put every single player in the world into the sample, right? It doesn't, it's not built for that. It can only take so many players at the moment. So It was about trying to make the sample as representative as possible. So we had a lot of indicators that we wanted to meet in terms of the players that we selected to go in there. So Crystal Dunn's a great example because she's obviously 100% an elite player, tick. She plays for a national team, tick, and she plays in one of the world's professional leagues, tick. So that was really obviously important that we captured people within the sample that are going to deliver us information about professional and international football, right? But then we have this which I think is a a great thing and hopefully only builds in the coming years. Women's football is actually quite global in the way that the professional leagues are spread. We have opportunities in North America, we have opportunities in Asia, and we have opportunities in Europe. So it's also making sure that we tried to cover leagues in different parts of the world and ones that ran on different schedules, like the Damosvenskan in Sweden and the NWSL in the USA, and obviously the more traditional winter seasons in France, England, and uh, Spain. So that was really important. And then on top of that, it was making sure that we had really good national team representation across the board as well, because one of the uh, elements that we look at in the report is the impact of travel on players. 
So obviously that means that we want to get players certainly outside of Europe or North America. We wanted to look at players who came from South America, came from different parts of Asia and things like that as well. So it was really a matter of the process and it's okay because I'm like a super geek about this stuff like really going through sort of line by line of the players that we had identified and making sure that they would help us build a really robust understanding of what was going on. I mean really I think the main thing that I took away from the draft and I think there's there's so much and we're going to dig into a lot of kind of the smaller stuff but you know what this kind of really boils down to is the schedule is so key right and I think, you know, looking at it from an American point of view and and what I think we've struggled with here is it's not even just, okay, travel, obviously a huge thing. I mean, the players have also, I think, been pretty clear in terms of, you know, they feel the demands of balancing professional club and country, right? And are all of these you like entities actually talking to each other? and trying to collaboratively say, okay, (laughs) we only have so many players with so much ability to play, and how are we taking advantage of this time, and is it for the best of everyone involved, right? And there's this line in the report of just kind of saying, we need to enable better scheduling and more collaboration across stakeholders. And I think from a from a USA point of view, that's very easy to understand, but I think it was so interesting to kind of view it from an international point of view in terms of club and country, but also how players are traveling for club and country and what kind of role that plays. So just in terms of, are you hopeful on that collaboration part of it? Always. I am <laughs> an eternal optimist. I mean, I've, only, I've been working at FIFA Pro now for a couple of years, so maybe in a few more years I'll be like quite dark and cynical. I'm not too sure. But right now I'm, I'm very optimistic. And I think for a couple of reasons, you're so right on the scheduling. And one thing that I found very interesting about the data in this report is if you look at the total volume of matches that players are playing in women's football, the total volume is not the issue. But the, it's the scheduling that creates these periods of like, quite heavy overload dispersed with probably what we would consider underload, right? So the total volume of matches doesn't seem to be really the issue, but it is just the scheduling. And so you look at obviously all of the competing interests when it comes to players playing in different competitions. And again, it's actually not that many, you know, in women's football, we don't have as crowded a stakeholder environment, right? We don't have like a European leagues or a world league forum coming in and saying, you can't do this to our leagues. You, the, federations for the most part some of them are extremely well organized and do act as an employer of the player and that's great but it's it's not as many as it there is on the men's side and you know you don't have as many competitions taking up calendar space so it's a smaller pool of players it's a smaller group of leagues and it's a smaller group of stakeholders so you would like to think that that creates more opportunity for the type of collaboration that's necessary because at the end of the day like if if you're not maximizing the opportunities across the year, you actually just end up sort of cutting each other's lunch. So it makes sense if everyone wants to maximize the potential of the industry and maximize the performance of the players, then actually sharing your toys in a way makes a lot more sense. So I, I am really hopeful. And again, we're sort of, as you mentioned right at the top, we're not used to seeing this type of data, right? So it's now it's about how we present it and go into those negotiations and consultations with the other stakeholders and say, look, guys, 
it is possible. We can see that there's space in the calendar. Let's just talk about where we want our competitions to fit into that. I want to talk about CONCACAF a little bit because CONCACAF is one of the ones where it's very heavy on national teams. But first, I wanted to talk about this idea of underload of players because that's actually kind of the primary finding of the study is that generally players aren't actually playing enough, which is not probably the case here in the U.S., but from a global point of view, that seems to be where things are actually at. To your point, there's not actually that many competitions. Yeah, there's a few things around that as well. And CONCACAF, particularly for the US and, and Canada, you know, they have supplemented sort of a lack of domestic club competition with heavy national team schedules, which is fine. It, that's completely understandable. And I think when you have those sorts of vacuums, federations can step in and that's great and they've maximised that really well. I think now if you look globally, not enough member associations engage regularly enough with international football. That's a huge problem. And obviously FIFA and the way that they organise and create competitions has a huge role to play in addressing that. The other side of it, though, which I find really interesting is in professional club football at the minute, if you look at the gap between number of teams between men's and women's football, and actually, which obviously has a, a direct parallel to the number of games that you play in your domestic club environment, the NWSL is 10, right? France has 12, England has 12. Spain for a year had 18, which actually produced some pretty good numbers in terms of workload for players. So I think underload, actually, it's, there's a few different contributing factors. I think there is certainly, and it's happening in the US, of course, there's certainly room for expansion in terms of number of clubs in a league because that will automatically give you more games and more competitive opportunities for players not just matches, but actually opportunities for employment, which is so important. And there's obviously that type of space in some of the European leagues as well for them to actually expand and be like, right, actually, if we want to address underload and do it in a really sort of sustainable way, actually bringing in some more teams into the top leagues could be a solution in that regard. But then obviously one other thing that we talk about a lot in the report and CONCACAF is really interesting in this regard is lack of international club competitions as well. So obviously you have the UEFA Women's Champions League, which is fantastic and has gone under uh, a reform recently to add more games into that competition. And you can see what that does, not only for workload of players, but general growth and potential around visibility to and commercial opportunities. Comnibol is the only other confederation that properly organises that. So it's not always just about, should I play for my national team more or should I play like more club games do we add another round or whatever it could be about do we add more teams and is there an environment in which we can have a really good international club competition which provides an, another platform of exposure and professionalism for players as well so I think that there, there's probably what you can see in my very lengthy explanations to some of your questions is it's really it's looking at the whole thing which is why that collaborative vision is really important because if you can start to piece all of that together you're going to end up with a really robust calendar, which actually serves serves to address some of the underload and potentially overload issues of the players as well. I wanted to ask you about how recovery and rest plays into this as well. I, I kind of, you know, in the report, there is kind of this definition of critical zone and then rest time, right? And how these things interact, but how... 
and also travel, right? Travel definitely plays a role in this. But just in terms of, was there anything that surprised you in terms of seeing some of the numbers of players in the critical zone or not getting enough rest time? You know, I, I think that we've kind of seen a little bit, and this is more on the college side here in the U.S., but there was a, you know, a, a story about players only getting a couple days in between games, right, and, and expected to play at a high performance level. But are our players actually getting enough rest and recovery? Because I think that was such a big question in kind of the, the COVID era, which we're still in, where players are are kind of being asked to just keep going, keep going, keep going. We we have a very hard and fast rule around that, right? It's 72 hours between matches. And that that's only really acceptable in a tournament environment as well, where you understand that back-to-back matches when you play, like, for example, the AFC, have their women's Asian cup going on at the minute. And there's 72, give or take 72 hours between the matches. And that's okay for like a couple of weeks. You know what I mean? But you, you cannot sustain that over a long period of time. And so when you talk about, and that, that 72 hours, you also sort of need to understand that that is in an ideal professional environment as well, where you have access to all the right facilities to aid you with your recovery. If there is travel involved, it's happening at the, the highest level, whether that's business class travel or, you know, what we frequently see on the men's side with chartered flights and things like that. That's really in a perfect bubble, you know, in terms of like training conditions and your ability to access what you need to recover properly. But that's also not something that you can maintain over a long period of time either. So if you're playing every 72 hours or 96 hours or whatever it might be. Yeah, you can, your body can sustain that for a, a certain length of time, but it just, you just end up with a graph where it's like, okay, your, your increase in injury is just going, your likelihood to get injured is just going up and up and up. So again, it's really important to look at the environment around the players as well, not just look at specifically the numbers, but again, I'm still struggling a little bit to find a way to describe this, but there, women's football players, for the most part, haven't actually had pre-training environments to prepare them for that type of professional football either. So when we had um, Dr. Sean Carmody from Chelsea write his opinion piece right at the start, he talked about how some players don't have access to like proper strength and conditioning programs until they are professional. So also there's not a lot of time for players actually prepare for that type of schedule because they haven't been exposed to things in the development pathway as well. So again, I apologize, Meg. I know I can like really go (laughs) off on trying to provide that whole picture around it, but I wish it was as simple for us to say, yeah, it's about 72 hours and traveling in business class because there's so much more to it in terms of like what players need to be at their very, very best. And Sometimes it's not, we're not even providing scenarios for players to be at their very, very best. We're like just trying to mitigate them getting injured, which is also not the place to be when you're trying to help the game and players reach their performance potential. Yeah, I mean, but I feel like that's such a, a thing for the women's game of just fundamentally trying to be like, okay, <laughs> yes, we want to be at this perfect professional level, right? But how do we even address kind of the, the structural systemic inequities and get to a certain foundation, right? So then we can go, okay, how do we get to this point? But also there's a whole generation of players or multiple generations of players, right? Who have not had those resources. So it really is, yeah, to your point, obviously there's so many different levels of 
resources also that are being dealt with here where, you know, like when you think about an FC Barcelona in Champions League, right, versus even a team within the NWSL and what even within the NWSL, I think there are differences in terms of facilities and resources and who has access to how many trainers, right? So it really is not this kind of no one is working with any sort of <laughs> equal structure. It really is trying to figure out, okay, how do we get all of these disparate environments and figure out, to your point, like what is the the best we can do to mitigate injury, which again, just feels kind of like a, how do we get to the bare minimum right mm-hmm. now? And then we worry about what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yes. And obviously being, um, a representative from a trade union that deals in industrial relationships. One of the keys is a collective bargaining agreement to help actually standardize those conditions across the board because we put in the report as well case studies from Spain and from the WSL in England where even clubs within that sort of quote-unquote professional league aren't meeting the minimum standards, right? So again, to your point, like if we're just constantly trying to mitigate injury, that that's only going to get us so far. We just need to raise the standards. And obviously with my background, I'm going to say the way to do that is to negotiate those conditions with the players and put a collective bargaining agreement in place and actually like have oversight and audit how the clubs are doing and make sure that they're meeting those standards. And a way to do that, obviously to get that accountability is empower the players with an understanding of what they're entitled to through the collective bargaining agreement and through that negotiation process. So but again, I'm extremely biased in that point of view. I'll say it a million times, like CBA is a real buzzword for me. I mean, it's perfect timing here in the NWSL as <laughs> that is very much in the works. But I do think, you know, there have been these kind of minimum standards that are set by U.S. soccer, right, in terms of when they give their their blessing to professional leagues, right, and say like, ah, yes, you're Division One, you're Division Two. There are minimum standards, but just because there are minimum standards doesn't mean that you can't do better via a collective bargaining agreement. Absolutely. And I think you see that. And so, like, it is no surprise that the clubs and the federations that put the most resources into their women's program to find those extra percentage points are the ones that walk away with the trophies. I mean, this is not rocket science. You know what I mean? So, yes, the minimum standards are very much they're a floor it's just a foundation and then it's up to the individual clubs based on their ambitions to build on that so it's not meant to be a target do you know what I mean it's actually meant to be something that provides a foundation for you to go on and be aspirational right I think you know we are starting to see that in a number of ways um across the game but also this does take resources that historically have not always been there, right? But this is now kind of, at least within a, an NWSL American point of view, we're starting to see kind of that differentiation between the teams that are willing to invest. Like, I don't know if you're following the the Kansas City Current and the training facility and the amount of money that they're putting into that, into building an NWSL-specific stadium, right? Like having those resources, making those long-term investments isn't just good business for the club and the business of the club, right? It's a good investment for the players themselves. So, Absolutely. And you end up building an environment that players are just dying to get to, right? Because they know that they're going to be looked after. So you're an attractive employer. 
in that regard too. So it, it serves so many different purposes, let alone your performance on the field. So I, I have been following it. I love seeing that type of innovation and that type of focus. And I've in my, um, I have these moments sometimes where I'm like, we need to sort of, we have all of these, again, these case studies, right? You look at um, what Leon were able to do in France and the way that they were sort of early pioneers in a way, in the way that they focused on on their team there and what it got them in terms of results. It's like, okay, there's probably enough information now out there in the different leagues. Like, how can we maybe provide some type of investment guide around these things? Like, where could you put your money that is historically shown that you're going to get maximum return on investment for whatever you decide your club KPIs are? Normally, that means winning trophies, right? So I do look at all of this type of information and I'm like, again, small stakeholder environment, is there a way that we can help we see this a lot now not so much in the US but certainly in Europe where we have you know major football brands now stepping into women's football whether it's you know recently with Manchester United and then you know Barcelona obviously haven't been there right from the beginning they were sort of late into it as well but are getting uh, huge rewards and success in that regard so you know particularly when we have money that comes in from a sort of quote-unquote parent club like how can we help guide that investment because again these are going to be places that are very attractive environments for players. And again, it it just provides more employment opportunities and better employment opportunities for players, which, yay, unionist flag waving <laughs> over here. I love that stuff. All right. I want to talk to you about travel. Um, it was, uh, I enjoyed the fact that the case study for travel really in the study is Dabinia, obviously, NWSL player um, and all of her time with the Brazilian national team. But obviously, if you want to talk about a, a player who is crucial for both club and country, right, and needing to be at national team obligations, but also the amount of flying. I mean, you there's actually a total. I mean, it's over 20,000 kilometers in total for travel. And that also, I mean... I think this is something that we talk about in the U.S. a little bit, too, in terms of like, oh, could we ever swap to a winter schedule? Could we could we change maybe the way that players travel? But, you know, the United States is a big country. There's a lot of travel. You're also doing potentially three time zones, at least um, on some away trips. And, you know, there's there's a lot of time on airplanes, really. But I think one of the things that I've talked to players about a lot over the years is just for some of these international players who have to go and, you know, play with their national teams and then fly back and then immediately get dumped back into a training environment or potentially even a game environment. That's a that's a lot to ask for for the players. And I think it's also led to players ultimately deciding that NWSL is not the league for them because the respect is not given for that travel time or FIFA windows aren't necessarily being honored all the time, right? There, there are some basic things just kind of not happening. But what role do you think travel really, was there anything surprising there that you, you found out about just in terms of, I think I was kind of just shocked by the numbers. I think you can't argue with the numbers, right? Intuitively, though, it didn't surprise me. Maybe that's also based on my experience, right? I spent 10 years playing for New Zealand and the majority of my professional club career in Europe or in Asia. So the distances were vast. And I also know what it's like when you aren't given sort of proper travel conditions that would be conducive to performance at either end, right? It's 
really cramped at the back of the plane. And if you're flying for 26 (laughs) to 30 hours, that can really take a toll. Uh, Obviously, I think there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. I also understand that in the US and in the NWSL, domestic travel is huge too. And I think when you combine that with the schedule, if you have 72 or 96 hours between matches, but you have to travel, you know, the breadth or the width of your country, that is going to take its toll. Because again, it's it's going to be part of that congestion and that buildup. So that's one thing. And certainly we can use the workload monitoring tool to, to dig into that a little bit further. But the way in which you travel and you just can't look at anything in, in isolation. So if you're bookended at each unit, an international window is a really good example, right? So typically what happens is a club will play or a team will play on a Saturday or a Sunday. The players fly Monday. They come into national team camp, depending on the distance, on Tuesday, maybe very early on the Wednesday. And then they are expected to play as early as that Thursday. And again, if even if you are traveling by chartered jet, where you have the entire thing to yourself and you have a massage therapist with you, that is really tough. That's And you can only do that every so often. So I can fully understand that players would pick leagues that would, again, to our earlier point, mitigate the risk of fatigue and injury in that environment. I can fully understand it, particularly if you... I understand also that for the NWSL to really take off and, and keep going on its trajectory, it wants to attract the best European players, right? It wants Ballon d'Or winners. It wants to attract, like, that type of top talent. But that if that top talent is also playing for a national team, in Europe and in their home country, they have the opportunity to play professional football. Well, you've really got to make your league enticing to pull them away, right? And if you're not being like respectful of the other commitments for that player, they're just not going to make that choice. And if they sit down and they look at a, a calendar schedule that absolutely slams them from April to October and they have to play a summer tournament in the middle of that and they're sort of on these short-term contracts. I think one other really important point around scheduling is if you're saying to a player, you're going to miss one third of your league games, but we're only going to offer you a one season contract. You have to do twice as much within a shorter period of time to actually get employment the following year. Right. So it all just sort of feeds into each other. But I think just with travel, it's like, it's the same as I suppose having standards around like training environments. It's like, are we actually supplying the players with the necessary physiological opportunities to succeed? And that means traveling at a certain level. You just have to be able to lie down. That can do wonders for a person's ability to get up and recover and perform and rest from actually the game that was played the weekend before they traveled. So it's incredibly important. And for me, it's also very controllable, right? It, that's just about purchasing the right type of airline ticket. There's there's not a lot else to it. And I think when we have conversations with competition organisers like FIFA, we're saying, look, if you want your competition to be the best that it can be, provide that for players coming in. Don't leave it to chance. Just be like, look, here's your ticket. Arrive in as good a shape as possible and, and please deliver a performance that's going to help grow our competition. End of. Yeah. Just in terms of the way that players are kind of asked to balance competitions, I think, you know, to this point about Europe, right? You want these big players also who are playing for their countries and World Cup qualifiers and all that kind of stuff. But there's also 
There's other games that maybe mean less on an international stage, like friendly, right? And is that where you kind of maybe see some of the give in terms of trying to harmonize all of the workload responsibilities for players who are, you know, going back to this kind of Crystal Dunn example, who's playing most of her minutes, or at least a majority of her minutes with a national team? Is there a way to maybe reduce that national team workload? Maybe some of it goes back into a club, but also you're kind of flattening that workload of like high intensity, no intensity, high intensity, no intensity. I think there's a couple of different ways to answer that. You can, if you look at the international match calendar, the number of windows that are are available for national teams, if you want to sort of make it, you could technically reduce that, right? So then it's not even a decision of do I play in this window or not? I mean, if there's, fewer windows for a start not saying that that's a solution possibly where they decide that right maybe some of the windows go for a little bit longer but we actually have a reduction because that would obviously minimize travel I mean last year was a good example there were the Olympics finished in August and but there were still four international windows before the end of the year it's quite a lot for three or four and it was quite a lot in a short period of time so that's one way that you could look at it I think though before we can have a discussion about players opting in and opting out of national team windows, Crystal Dunn's a really good example because she's employed by the Federation. So does she even have a choice to opt out? Because what would be the penalty on her remuneration in that regard? And a lot of federations have uh, sort of per diem or match appearance like fees for players as well. So it's an, And we know that the salaries in women's football aren't necessarily very high particularly for that sort of, if you get outside of that really top tier. So yes, you could opt out of national team football, but what's the financial hit for some of these players too? Because the way that the balance in terms of employment has worked in the past is it's required both, right? That's why you have centrally contracted players in the US because it was an understanding that the club game couldn't compensate them adequately enough at that point in time. So I would sort of ask the question around like, where's the money coming from and how would this actually affect the livelihood of the players? Because I don't know if it's as simple as saying, I'm just not going to play in this window. If that ends up costing you money or an opportunity to earn, which means that maybe you struggle in your life to pay the bills. I mean, that that's why it's maybe not as simple as just saying, well, yeah, well, this is just a friendly, I won't play in it. If that's where you get some of your remuneration, then I think that's, yeah, that takes some, a bit more thought in that regard uh, just because of the general precarity around stable employment in women's football. Just in terms of, I guess, next steps. I mean, obviously it feels like the big one is just being able to talk with stakeholders, but also having maybe some of all these various people come together and maybe start talking about, okay, how do we start thinking about, not even like this big harmonious schedule, but like maybe how do we make it a little bit better? But is there something out of this report where if people are reading it, you think maybe, okay, if they read it, they can take like one or two action items right off the bat and be like, oh, we could fix this. Scheduling. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and and sort of because we, we do this work again to help our unions too, because actually the, if you look at the way the industrial relationship tends to work, it's not FIFPRO that negotiates with the NWSL or the WSL, it's the local union. So it's also about providing them with the information to have 
those conversations with the competition organizers it's really important so I just think I would hope that if you if our unions or players or people that have an inherent interest in the industry look at this and think well okay it's it might seem sometimes rather complex but actually here are the numbers here's the space here's how it all could work that would be great right and again like I said right at the top it's not about being prescriptive it's just about saying like based on these numbers, is there a better way forward? And actually, like, there there are quite a number of consultation processes that are going on right now as well. So, obviously, FIFA are doing their thing around biennial World Cups and how does that come in and the feasibility studies and the, you know, the technical advisory group that Jill Ellis is leading on the women's side. So, there's one conversation that's going on right now. So, again, information like this should feed directly into that process and that's what we do with FIFA anyway so that's an example so there's there is an international environment which this feeds directly into but I would also hope that at a domestic level like and I do think I I was listening it was actually your podcast that you did with I think it was Alex Morgan Lynn Williams and Rachel Daly on scheduling Mm -hmm. and you listen to the way that the players think about these types of solutions and we use players to demonstrate some of the examples of, you know, the trends in the industry. So even if the players see this and they sit down and like, you know what, like let's have this conversation, see how this is impacting me, not just instinctively, but with the numbers in front of me. So all of this kind of work is really about empowering and educating and making sure that you're educating people on data that is specific to them and their careers and their industry. All right. Well, I I found the report fascinating. I really hope people take the time to read it. I know it's it's definitely again, we just don't get this stuff. <laughs> so I think it's so reassuring when I mean, I feel like the reports that we get are like the and or the the World Cup technical report, mm. you know, like that's about it. <laughs> so to actually kind of get some additional reports and get some additional data around all of this, it's just super interesting and I think it obviously it's bigger than NWL or the U.S. Women's National Team but it's also I think helpful to look at other leagues and other teams and how all of those things are interacting too because uh, no one needs to reinvent the wheel but also everyone could actually maybe have a conversation to improve things just a little bit. <laughs> I fully agree and if it all has to start with discussion right but you just you need to have something to talk around and hopefully the reports and the things that we put out again, I understand I, it is great, obviously, now that you see more and more reporting coming into women's football, but it's really the value is going to be in the specificity too. So hopefully we can, this is obviously very specific on a certain area, uh, but hopefully we can keep encouraging more and more of that because again, there's plenty of people, I've found there's plenty of people dying to talk about it like you and like me. Uh, but it's just making sure that they have information to do it in a in an accurate way. All right. Well, thank you so much for hopping on the pod to walk everyone through the report. And yeah, we'll be we'll be following. Thank you so much. Thank you to Sarah for her time and also for navigating time zones with me. Um, I'm definitely hopeful that she can hop back on the show sometime soon. Just, you know, having that sort of global perspective on issues like this, I think, is so important that we have these conversations and keep them going. 
All right, one more thing as always. Who's panicking about the women's hockey tournament at the Olympics? That would be this kid. Send good vibes for Team USA, for Hillary Knight, and for my anxiety levels while watching games at 8 a.m. Eastern. Thank you in advance. Sorry about the tweets in advance. For all things full-time, you can visit fulltimepod.com. There are links for all of the major podcast platforms in one spot, plus more information. If you'd like to subscribe to The Athletic and support all of our women's soccer coverage, you can do that right now at theathletic.com slash fulltime. It's always one of our very best deals. My name is Meg. You have been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic, of course. Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.